Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to take a reading from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter, the first to the twelfth verses. And uh, this is in Matthew's Gospel where we meet John the Baptist. Um, we have met him once in the womb of Elizabeth in the story of the visitation that we take from the Gospel of Luke. But here now he appears as an adult and a man with a mission. And it's said that he preached in the wilderness of Judea, and this was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is close at hand. This was the man the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord and make his paths straight. So we have now, this is actually where, Matthew, where Mark's gospel begins with repent for the kingdom of God is close at hand. And that comes from Jesus in Mark's gospel. So the message of the Baptist and the message of Jesus are exactly the same in the beginning. And uh, what does this repent mean? I mean, we, we get kind of a, a one-dimensional notion of repentance, and we think it's, you know, basically to be sorry for our sins and, uh, and, and to confess them. And that, uh, but the word in Scripture means something considerably more than that. It's a word that is used as metanoia, and it means a total transformation it's not just getting rid of my sins, but it's changing of my heart and my whole person to be oriented away from sin and oriented toward the living God. The use of our confession is to expedite that, uh, that metanoia, that transformation, and by overcoming the obstacles that we face along the way. It's not actually a substitute for a final conversion, for a final transformation of the human person. It's what we need along the way to arrive there and to achieve in any way, shape, or form that kind of, that kind of change deep in our hearts. You know, a lot of times we hear about forgiveness and people say, well, you know, I have forgiven, but I don't forget. Well, that's not really doable. Forgiveness is not an act of the will. I can say, I forgive you, <clears throat> and still harbor a grudge in my heart. Forgiveness <clears throat> is the changing of the human heart, just like repentance is the changing of the human heart and the changing of the human person. And so this idea now that somehow the kingdom of God is at hand, and for us to participate fully in that, we need to go through this transformation of our persons, away from our orientation towards sin, even the even minor sin, and uh, and and toward a total self-giving and self-opening to the living God. Then the Matthew goes on to identify John as voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight his paths. Here. He is, is quoting um, the prophet Isaiah, as Isaiah is therefore identified as, uh, as the one who has pr proclaimed that there would be some Messiah, someone coming 
who whom the Lord has uh, whom the Lord has has called, and uh, we we find that to be. Um, you know, a constant, especially in this earlier part of the Gospels, um, we find the Old Testament being incredibly influential. Um, we find the in influence of the Old Testament probably as dramatically as ever in, in the first two chapters of, of Luke, and especially like in Mary's Magnificat, which is a summation of the hopes and the dreams of Israel. And that uh, these hopes and dreams of Israel, she says the Magnificat because they are becoming fulfilled in the person of Christ, who she carries now from that moment on in her womb and eventually gives him forth to the world. And I, I think that here we have to pause for a moment and reflect upon a problematic in our understanding of the Gospels. And that is, you know, it was a tradition, especially during the Reformation era, to diminish in many ways the Old Testament. In fact, is because Catholicism relied so heavily on the Old Testament, the Reformers Fingley from, from Zurich, Switzerland, um, condemned us for being Judaizers, thinking that we were in some way, shape, or form too close to the Old Testament and therefore not really committed in total Christians. That kind of erroneous understanding of Christianity was, was, was rampant in, uh, in the late Middle Ages um, and especially in the Protestant reforms. Whereas if we really look at the Gospels closely, we find that in the Gospels there is a total dependence on the Old Testament in order for the evangelists to feel like they can be understood in the things that they say. They can't possibly hear even. Um, Matthew is going to say something difficult. And he wants to make sure that when he talks about John the Baptist, that the character of John the Baptist is himself anchored deep in the Old Testament, especially in the, in the testimony of Isaiah. In some of the Gospels, of course, they collect sayings from many different places and just attribute it to Isaiah because he is just kind of the normal... Um, the normal person, the, the normal uh, prophet that Christians go to even today will find readings from Isaiah throughout Lent in the anticipation of the resurrection and throughout Advent in anticipation of the nativity. So now we have found now that John the Baptist, who is named by Matthew, he appears and he preached in the wilderness of Judea. And this was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. This was the man whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. This is John's way and Matthew's way and the evangelist's way of identifying the authenticity of the prophetic voice of the Baptist that he is not just one of many coming out of the desert, for there were others who came out of the desert. Um, there, there was, the desert actually, in a way, was a very specific place. And it was the desert that was near um, the, the Qumran, the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and the, and the, and the settlements of the Essenes who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And uh, even though there's a contemporary um, debate about whether did the Essenes really produce those scrolls or did they carry them from Jerusalem and hide them during the Roman occupation, but the weight of the evidence seems to be they were authored in Qumran. They were authored by the Essenes. And, and they were hidden, therefore, when Israel was falling, hidden in the caves of Qumran near the Dead Sea. So it is that wilderness which is referred to over and over again, the wilderness near, and it could very well be why the Essenes chose that particular kind of environmentally unfriendly place for human habitation. It's very dry, very arid. Um, but it was the place traditionally where, where those different heroes of the Old Testament and of the New went in, in, order, in order to encounter evil and overcome it in the choosing of good. It's interesting that from Jericho, which is near this area, you can see where the temptations of Jesus took place on the mountain. So it is, it is a geographical specific place then that when the voice cries in the wilderness, the voice cries in the desert. He comes out of the, of the wilderness of Judea. He comes out of the deserts and, uh, and begins to proclaim the age-old message of the repentance, the metanoia, for the repentance, for an openness to the kingdom of God. Then he said, then Matthew goes on and he, he, he gives a further explanation of who the person of John is. And he said, this man, John, wore a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt around the waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And uh, so there, there was, within the Essene community, and, and there's no definitive proof that John was a member of the Essene community, but we remember that Zechariah was a priest in the temple. And many of the children, many of the sons of the priests of the temple came to Qumran, to the Essene communities. It's kind of like going for us going away to boarding school. They would go there as young men in order to, in order to come and be more deeply imbued in the prophecies, especially of Isaiah, but in all the prophecies, and participate also in the speculation and the quest for the coming of the Messiah or for some of the Essenes, the Messiahs. And um, one, they, they split, actually the Essenes split the, uh, the, the standard Jewish understanding of Messiah as the great king, general, and conqueror, and so forth, with what they called the teacher of righteousness. And there's great ambiguity about the teacher of righteousness, whether he had already lived and been killed, or whether they were anticipating him. There's, there's ambiguity in the scrolls about this. But the fact is that they, they saw both dimensions of the Messiah, but they couldn't comprehend them being in the single person. And so for many of them, they anticipated the, the two Messiahs. But when they had mastered the prophets, they were allowed to go out into the desert, again, to encounter evil and choose good, and then they wore kind of like a religious habit, we would say, which was um, a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt around their waist. And they lived off the land, which was locusts and wild honey. The wild honey is really the gum of the, uh, of the scrub trees in the desert. And we call it resin. They went out in the desert, as I said, to, to encounter evil as Jesus did, encountered Satan, overcome the powers of evil, 
And then they would come out of the desert and dressed as, as this is described in Matthew's Gospel and basically proclaim the prophecies of Isaiah especially. But here in the Gospel, once John has done that, once he's been identified both in the Old Testament and as one of the great um, hermits of the desert, then, then Matthew tells us that Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole Jordan district made their way to him, and as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. Obviously, this is not all Judea and the whole Jordan district, but what it really means is that there was a great crowd that had come out to, to see John, a great crowd that had come out to hear his message, many of them confessing their sins and being have the symbol of their washing away of their sins in the baptism of John. Now, baptism, or the use of water to symbolize the inner cleansing of a person, was not something, is not something specific to Christianity alone. It was a practice among some of the Jewish sects, and even in non-Christian, non non-Jewish religions, sometimes you have this bathing as a sign of purification, a sign of, of being cleansed. So we're not, to, we're not to interpret this with the sacramental baptism as affecting original sin, but we're to look at it as kind of an attempt on the part of the people to turn their lives around. And he said, but when he saw a number of Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to fly from the retribution that is coming? So the scribes, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of course, show up again at, at critical moments. And here when the Baptist is preaching at the Jordan. And as, as he does so, they sh and he immediately sees that they are not there for the repentance of sin. He knows that they're there to critique uh, and to criticize and to make sure that they know what's going on in their own territory because what they have to do is be, in a way, um, up to date on everything that's going on with, their peop with the people over whom they exercise authority. And so John, recognizing that they are not in a mood to repent, that they are simply there for nefarious reasons, basically, he calls them a brood of vipers. And this is interesting because that kind of language in use for the Pharisees and the Sadducees usually is left to Jesus in his later ministry. But here it's anticipated in Matthew's Gospel as John himself being able to identify the, the uh, deceptiveness and the, and, and the inner life of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he said, who warned you? And uh, which is kind of in a way a sarcastic thing because they're not there to repent. And so they're not basically worried about the retribution that is coming because <clears throat> basically they don't believe it. And so, but if you are repentant, produce the appropriate food and do not presume to tell yourself we have Abraham for our father. So John knows them well. And he said, however, no matter how cold your heart is, um, you can repent. And there, it is never too late. You can even be one of the Sadducees, one of the most vicious op opposers of the new Messiah. And even they could repent if they, if they wanted to, if they desired to. 
But John says, this is why you're not going to do it, actually. And this is interesting, because you're going to say, we have Abraham for our father. Well, this is, a, this is a very powerful statement and a very, very important statement because the right, the whole thing of being part of the elect, of the chosen, was having the blood of Abraham flow in your veins. That that was, in fact, the great and the strongest part of, uh, of, of the, their sense of separateness, their sense of elitism, their sense of being different from everyone else, and that it was because they are the ones with the blood of Abraham in their veins, and therefore they are the children of the covenant, and the one to whom the covenant therefore refers, because it was made to Abraham. And as long as Abraham is alive in his descendants, the covenant is alive in them also. So there is what we would call an entitlement to election in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And John calls this out. He knows this. And he says to them, you're going to say we have Abraham for our father, so we don't need to repent because we're entitled to election, entitled to election from birth, where in, in our contemporary language, rather than, go, rather than go into the whole Hebrew idea of blood, we can really say they, they feel they're, they're genetically entitled um, to a separateness, to an election, to the being the chosen ones. But John says, that's what you're going to say. But I tell you, God can raise children for Abraham from these stones. In other words, God can make anyone he wants a, an equal to the children of Abraham. And he can, he can do it from the lowest forms of human life. And he can bring into his, his all-powerful creating care, he can certainly bring into the world whatever salvation, whatever repentance, whatever his kingdom he wants to do. But he said, but then John says, but don't rely on this, on this entitlement. For I tell you right now that even the ax is laid to the root of the trees, so that any tree which fails to produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now go back and, and, see, and see what he says. If you repent and produce appropriate fruit, you can enter the kingdom of God. But if you rely on your entitlement, then what can happen is that, you know, the ax is already laid to the root of your entitlement, and that without producing good fruit, you will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So unless you change your way of life, um, your, your, days, your days are numbered. And uh, for I baptize you in water for repentance, but the one who follows me is more powerful than I, and I am not fit to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, with his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. So here we are. Unless the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their ilk desire to repent and to bear good fruit, the fruit that was anticipated through the prophecies of Isaiah, the peaceful mountain, the great day of the Lord, and so forth, unless they represent that, unless they come into that fully and completely, 
um, they're going to be thrown into the fire and cast away by the one who is to come after him. In other words, here he acknowledges fully the fact that he is the precursor. He is the one announcing the coming of the Messiah. So here we have then the story that we encounter um, in the Gospel of St. Matthew, some of the background and, and what it means and, and how it, it, it really comes into the charisma of the church. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does all this mean for us? Because the Gospels were written not just for the people of the first century, but they were written for the people of all the centuries. And so they were written very specifically and particularly for us as well. And so if they are, then how do we relate to this whole story of the wilderness? How do we relate to this whole story of the sense of entitlement to, to salvation? And I think that this might be, in the modern church, one of the greatest, one of the greatest of all um, our issues and our problems, is the notion that people have anything to repent of. I, I know that I had a friend who uh, tried to teach, teach uh, repentance and, uh, and as a priest and, and said, you know, it, it's his whole mission is to save souls. And he was basically mocked by the congregation, like, you know, we don't care about the saving of souls. They were social justice warriors in the extreme. And they therefore resented and took personally any implication that they might be, there might be any sin in their lives, which of course itself was sinful. But they also then were angry when someone talked about the disposition of their eternal soul, of their eternal life, because that had nothing to do with their form of the Christian faith. In that sense, they became companions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We don't want to hear it. Um, we're going to do our thing, and we don't care what you say or what you do. And uh, we don't even care if it's Jesus Christ, because he is not who he has revealed himself to be to us. He is whom we have identified to ourselves as who Jesus Christ is. And so this process of, become, of coming in charge in charge of our faith, the ones who determine the interior dispositions of our soul, the ones who determine what the good fruit is in the world, um, independent of revelation, independent of the Holy Spirit, independent of the church, all of this we know, all of this is familiar to us in the modern church. Um, you, you find, for instance, that there is a whole crowd of Catholics who turn every doctrinal statement that comes out from any uh, magisterial authority somehow or other as a political position which they have every right to oppose and try to gather resistance to. It's, it's most amazing because the whole idea that our faith is a gift from God that intends to orient us toward a return to God through the wastelands and the deserts of our own sinfulness and the aridness of our cultures, um, through the repentance of our sins and the changing of our hearts, which is the story of salvation, which is the purpose of the Lord. And, uh, and to reject that is very honestly to reject Christianity. And those who do reject it 
should no longer really have the have the the chutzpah, have the hubris hubris to even call themselves Christians, for they reject the very core of the Christian of Jesus's teaching, and they certainly reject even now what John the Baptist is saying. Don't call on your baptism, or don't call on your sense of entitlement. Don't call upon simply your culture. Don't call upon any of that and say, because of that, I am one of the elect. I am one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, the wise ones, one of the, one of the sages of modern religion. Don't say that, because I tell you, God can make all sorts of people deep Christians without you. And he says, even now the ax is laid to the roots of the trees so that any tree which fails to produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown onto the fire. That your entitlement is worthless. It's kindling for the fires of the Holy Spirit. It's kindling for the purification of the world. And so we then have to look deeply into our own lives. We have to come to, to understand as very best we can what goes on inside of us. This is why self-knowledge is a very important part of believing. Um, you know, the, in the secular world, they say, well, Socrates' is great line, genote te auton, know thyself. But that is not just a philosophical piece of wisdom. That's, that's a piece of wisdom that is inherent within the whole human community and which is articulated and drawn out of us by the grace of Almighty God. That unless we know who we are completely, and you know, I mean, we can go to therapy for 40 years and come out and know all sorts of things about ourselves. Um, without knowing who we are. Because to remind us once again of the wisdom of St. Bernard, we have no idea who we are if we don't know our origin and know our destiny. And that pretty much sums up the fruit of self-knowledge and the fruit of human wisdom. If we know where we come from, we come from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word through whom all things came to be and without him nothing is. We also are aware of our destiny, for God wills the salvation of all men, and that God wills in some way, shape, or form to redeem the, the creation that he has given to us, including ourselves. And so we, we find then in this, in, this, in this battle, I suppose we might want to say, in this, in this battle against the sense of entitlement. And I think perhaps that I am so great that I don't need to be saved. I am so good that I don't need to repent because I don't recognize any of my sins. They might as well say to themselves, I have no idea who I am, and therefore I will try and create a world where I'm comfortable. Such is foreign to the gospel, such is foreign to the faith, and such hopefully is foreign to all of us. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.